welcome to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast, where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. Hello, everybody. And my name is Ashling. Welcome back to another episode. And yet again, we just have another guest that is willing to give us their time. We're always just marveled by the fact that people want to talk to us. They're really excited. But tonight we have got Sophie Pavel. Sophie is a zoologist, author, science communicator. She is also the campaign and communications lead at the Beaver Trust and presented their award-winning documentary, Beavers Without Borders and Sophie's book debuts in June 2022. Sophie, you've written a book. You look too young to have written a book. <laughs> I don't really know how how that came to be, I must say. <laughs> it feels very weird. The whole thing is very bizarre, but yeah, I, I seem to have a book with my oh, name on it. It's so fantastic. <laughs> I think I would be just thrilled to even like oh, imagine that. Just you're going to just see your name on this book on the shelves. It's so exciting. It's very weird. But Thank Sophie, you. you're very welcome <laughs> to the podcast. And first and foremost, uh, what we want to know most from our guests is where or when can you remember the first moment where you thought, right, I'm going to go to nature for what I'm going to go and do in life like when did that become that thought of yours okay you're not going to go into banking you're not going to go into any other sciences where, where did that thought where did that love and that spark come from well I'm afraid I'm really boring I never really had like a moment I kind of feel like even now I I think you know how why, how am I here why am I here <laughs> I don't know <laughs> But I think there was no, I think it was the culmination of of so many things. I think luck had a huge part to play in it as it often does. But I think the, the, I mean, all the way through university, I flip-flopped between completely contrasting careers all the way into my final year. So I did zoology at university, but throughout second and third year, I was like, oh, maybe I want to be an environmental lawyer and help the environment that way. So I did work at a law firm and hated it. (laughs) Um, It was way too corporate for me. I had like zero commercial knowledge and um, felt very out of place and wanted to be outside. And so that was a good, that was a good uh, door closed. And then I, um, my whole family, most of my family is in the military. And so I pursued that but then unfortunately I had some knee surgery and so that precluded that option and then I thought about dentistry medicine veterinary medicine physiotherapy I was kind of floundering <laughs> but I think my parents are a bit like um okay you know we'll support you but maybe make a decision soon and uh, <laughs> and then in my master's so I did a master's in science communication I think that was the kind of very formative year where it kind of started to f- come together and I realized actually you could have a very sciencey career but also it be complemented very creatively and you can explore lots of creative options and so I think it was in that year that I discovered what I really enjoyed was things like writing things like podcasts I didn't really realize that you could still be in the sort of science space in those ways I'd always had an interest in media and that sort of thing and so that really helped sort of build my confidence in that space and then at the same time in terms of global affairs and what was going on in the environment and the news and climate change and I started to feel like there was a, a, a somewhere to channel this energy and this um, interest and so I then started to really focus the jobs that I was applying for and 
I'd done a lot of work and volunteering with NGOs and conservation charities around Britain, um, just locally, but the national charities. And so I decided very quickly that I wanted to work for a charity. And so I was just applying to loads and loads of charities, failed miserably in many areas in terms of actually getting a successful job. But then it kind of came together with Beaver Trust in um, right as lockdown happened, actually, which was very weird. <laughs> what made you decide to go and do a master's in science communication? Um, good question. I mean, it, it was a weird one because naturally I'm, I know I don't come across like this on social media at all, but, um, I'm very shy. And so the whole idea of like speaking to the public and trying to get people excited about science, I felt very kind of not suitable for that, but I did this field course in my second year of zoology. Um, and it was a random allocation. I just got some students got to go to like Costa Rica, some students got to go to Lundy and Portugal and I got to stay in Bristol and talk to the public and go to schools and do talks about fossils. <laughs> but it was really, it was, it was, it was actually so much fun and two of my best friends actually got picked as well. So that helped. Yeah, I never realised that there was this kind of crazy field called science communication. It was like a buzzword that was just coming into play, hadn't really been thrown around all that much. And I realized there was actually so much joy in sharing your passion with random people and to see them getting excited about it. And I think because I'd never practiced that before, I'd never experienced the feedback that you get when someone's like, oh my gosh, that's actually so interesting. Or, oh, where do I go and find out more about that? Or, oh, I'd actually love to go volunteer for my local wildlife trust. I don't know. And it's kind of addictive. And when you realize actually, if we need loads of people to act on things like climate change, and biodiversity loss we need to hook them into that kind of innate joy that we find as people in this space and the way to do that is to engage with them on their level and to share your passion and impart some of that and hope that it can maybe help one person see the natural world in a more accessible way and then it opened up all these avenues and then I found this course at UE that was very like vocational very practical a world away from like the very academic course at Bristol and I just thought actually I think this is a, a useful thing to do I think this actually can give me a real purpose and I feel like this feels right I've always had quite a good gut instinct and I just had a really good gut instinct there and it definitely was the right choice that's brilliant and how on earth then did that all kind of culminate in writing a book where was what was the well I have so many questions around the book what was the motivation for it but how did it all start tell us there weave us weave us through the story well as I said before I've always enjoyed writing and I realized that uh, I did English at A level and I loved it. And I was actually, my English teachers at A-level were trying to persuade me to do English at uni instead of zoology. But I thought zoology might give me a better job, unfortunately. But, you know, many am amazing jobs come from doing English, I'm sure. But at the time, I was sort of funneled into, no, science, do science. Anyway, um, so I've always loved English. And I've always found that actually being able to write well can really help you communicate science and to weave text in all sorts of creative ways to make it accessible to new people and so I wrote throughout my master's doing like coursework and assignments and volunteered to write articles for free for like my local magazine in Devon and a few other places and things for the wildlife trust and so I was a, a sort of accumulating a portfolio and like contributing to blogs and stuff with no intention ever of like writing a book ever 
was just something that I assumed that you would do when you were in your 50s and had a load of experience and stories under your belt. And then I was approached to be part of the 2019 State of Nature report, which is this huge, it's a kind of a bit like the British version of the IPCC report, where it's a culmination of years of data and it's a summary that basically goes through all the different taxa and habitats in Britain and kind of says how they're doing and what's going on and conservation success stories and things that are going really badly and what we need to do about it. Um, And it was a really important report because 2019 was like the big year of, okay, the climate is in dire straits. This is what we need to do about it. And then on the release date of that, I was asked to write an article for the Metro about the report and what it meant. And that was like my first time writing for like a tabloid newspaper. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a random email from this publisher um, who was a big publisher, not Bloomsbury, but one of their competitors who said they'd read the article and had I ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, um, are you sure you're not the right person? <laughs> and uh, they just said, oh, you know, your style of writing is very accessible and quite different. And so long story short, I submitted a proposal. I kind of had to come out, think of an idea out of nowhere, submitted a, propos- a proposal, wrote a sample chapter, had a meeting. They ended up saying it wasn't for them because they didn't like the first person narrative of it. So I was a bit like, oh, I've literally spent like two months writing this proposal. Anyway, so I was a bit disappointed because I kind of got fired up about the idea. So I had Christmas to think it over. And then a friend said, well, you've got a fully formed proposal. Why don't you see if another publisher wants it? And I was like, oh, I "I guess, yeah, (laughs) maybe that's a good idea. And so they recommended Bloomsbury. They'd written a book with Bloomsbury. And Bloomsbury are kind of world renowned for their wildlife books and their natural history department sent them the proposal and then the next day or two days later was in London having a meeting and then uh oh it was like January and then Covid hit and then say four or five months later got the commission amazing Um, it's very weird and like the the weird thing is that the idea sort of came out of nowhere but then I think thinking retrospectively Mm. the idea of traveling and finding things and kind of winging it slightly and making it up as you go along and not really knowing what what you're doing or or knowing much about the the animals that you're hoping to find but sort of learning along the way and taking the reader with you I think it had been forming for a long time a few years before because I've always done that sort of thing just passionately as a hobby you know going outside going on adventures taking people on social media with me or just doing it for myself and kind of being quite haphazard and disorganized about it all and so and so yeah and then here we are and so it's been a very intense two years balancing that with work and then um obviously trying to do all the low carb and travel right in the middle of all the lockdowns was challenging um but it's been the you know must say it's been like the absolute best thing I've ever done hardest thing I've ever done but the best thing I've ever done in terms of how much I've enjoyed it I'm seriously impressed. I'm like, I cannot believe that that happened. <laughs> That's insane. It is, it is crazy. No, I still have, it's very much a pinching yourself moment, but. Um, yeah, but what a lovely reflection of you and your ability and your skill to reach people that that oh, one you. article, you know, resonated mm. well, that's so what, profoundly. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. I think a lot of luck came into it in terms of that publisher who no- happened to notice that article 
gave if anything just gave me the confidence that I Mm. think I needed at that point to actually do Mm. something that felt wild at the time but I think had she not kind of put words into my mouth in terms of have you ever thought about writing a book Mm. I I don't I honestly don't think I would have I don't know I don't know if I would have done it had the confidence to actually give it a go I really like the first person narrative and the fact that you take the reader on the journey with you. So for people that want to know a bit more about your book, can you tell us a little bit about the concept of what the book has in store for us? What sort of journey can we go on with you around the British Isles? Sure. So it is a non-fiction narrative. So it's very much a story um, and it's very much my voice kind of taking you on that story. And it tells us the story of 10 different low carbon trips I make across Britain. So we start in Bodmin in in Cornwall and then go all around the place. We go to Orkney, we go to Sussex, we go to Wales, we go to Scotland, um, we go into Devon and each chapter is dedicated to an endangered species that is surviving on the front lines of climate change. And I chose these species, it was very hard to choose 10 because obviously there are more than 10 uh, in need of this kind of attention. But I chose these 10 species because I feel like they're not very well known. They're overlooked. They're the kind of underdog species that you may not have heard of. And the whole kind of mission is to make the most of the things that we have on our doorstep here before they go, before we lose them. And I didn't know anything at all really about any of the species before I started looking for them. And so throughout the chapter, I enlist the advice, the guidance and the expertise from researchers around the world who are looking at these species, studying what's going on to help me understand and build a picture as to what's really going on with their survivability in the face of climate change. And then also just how amazing they are and what, uh, you know, the joy they can bring in learning all about their little quirks and, and weird things that go on. I think actually I don't know why I feel so shocked that you struggled to choose a species that was endangered in terms of like you think of endangered species like um, Asian elephants or you know something that's further away but an in- mm. to know that there's that was like a, the minimum endangered species in the UK is is really quite I'm actually quite shocked I feel a bit ignorant about it actually I, I'm really shocked no well not at all I mean honestly I you know the, part of the whole in the introduction in the prologue I kind of lay out the fact of yes I have a zoology degree and blah 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 and on paper it looks like I know exactly what I'm talking about but really I felt equally ignorant you know I had no idea that we had so many species that were you know hanging on the precipice of survival in our country and that most of the threats that they're facing are because of us and I felt frustrated when I was learning about them that I didn't learn about this in zoology that I was learning about the elephants the lions the cheetahs the jaguars the orangutans why weren't we learning about things like dung beetles Mm. or seabirds you know and things that are that are right here that actually if we learned about and had an appreciation for and we understood how ecology works i.e how an animal fits into its surroundings and how we fit into that picture as well I feel like we would be more in tune with the natural world as a whole and probably more invested in sorting out all the problems that it's facing 
so yeah it was impossible to choose 10 you know I wanted to choose ones Mm. that took me all over the place and gave me a good representation as to the different facets of climate change because obviously it's very complicated and it affects species in different ways I wanted species that represented different environments um, different taxa so insects mammals birds all those sorts of things so um sorry just going to pick up on something you said a little bit earlier sort of this inevitability about enjoying it while we can is there an inevitability to losing these species well unfortunately um yeah I mean there is a lot of these species are red listed and so that means that's a category that they put them in clever people put species in categories it goes like green amber red like a traffic light as to whether they're okay or not and red is pretty dire um so it's it means that if we don't intervene and really understand the threats that are facing them and understand what they need to recover then they could go extinct you know very quickly well within our lifetime you know very much within my lifetime we've lost tens of millions of birds in the last 30 years And so, yeah, you know, Britain is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world. We're losing one in seven mammals alone are going extinct. And so it's really a case of becoming aware of that, of accepting it and then figuring out, figuring out what we can do. But I really believe and I really hope that I've I've tried to do this with this book is that not to paint a a gloomy picture at all. Mm. I think to try and captivate people with the joy that can be found in just being in nature not really having it you don't need to have an idea of what you're looking at you don't need to be able to id everything you don't need to be able to you know reel off the latin names of that bird over there or that thing over there i think it's more about just allowing yourself giving yourself the permission to be immersed in that space and feeling accepted in that space and once you're emotionally connected to something you're so much more likely to be invested in its future and its survival, Mm. just like we are with our family and our friends, you know? Mm. So I think once you've hooked people in emotionally and you've made them appreciate what they might lose, Mm. then you hit them with the hard stuff and they're probably going to be, hopefully be a bit more like, oh, okay, right. I get it now. Mm. We need to sort this out. So actually we never mentioned the name of your book. It's called forget me not. (laughs) I feel like after this conversation, it feels even more poignant that that's actually what it's called it's I'm I'm so I'm so (laughs) I'm I'm really I don't know I guess I'm ricocheting a bit from what you know I I just can't believe that about species in the UK I'm curious to know um you mentioned that when you were studying zoology some of your friends were sent to Costa Rica you were you stayed at home so how do you reach young people what how do you alter your language you mentioned about you know bringing the joy and positivity but has that been a challenge to try and you know how do you tell young people all of this in a positive way Mm. it is challenging and it's something that I'm really interested in so my master's research project was kind of on this where I was looking at how can we adapt science to sit well and be well received on social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. At the time, TikTok wasn't a thing, which makes me feel very old. (laughs) But it would be interesting to revisit that actually with TikTok now, because obviously it's completely changed the game. But I think the main thing is that I, on the whole, 
find like heavy science data numbers quantitative stuff really difficult to digest I've always hated maths can't do physics like seeing a, a chemistry equation would make me feel a bit nauseous I just can't my brain doesn't work like that I'm much better with words and I'm much better with like working problems out with words and so I think if anything part of the way I end up coming across is because I write it in a way that helps me understand i.e removing all the jargon really breaking it down totally dissecting a really intense piece of research into the bare fundamentals of what actually people need to know and like the takeaways of you know what what call to action are we asking people because ultimately if people read something they're left like well what do you expect me to do about it what do I do what's in it for me so I think having those questions and working backwards into okay in order to answer that question what is the top three highlights of information that people need to know from that piece of news or that piece of research and so if anything I think especially with the book the way I built each chapter was just me trying to get my head around a lot of very complicated stuff and quite sobering realities that a lot of the experts relayed to me and then interspersed with the narrative of where I was and what I was doing and what I was eating and who I was with and so I think to reach young people I think they just want to you know the world is so busy and so noisy and we're so distracted we have so many things demanding our attention at multiple times throughout the day that I think we need to be really economical with what we choose to relay and ask people because otherwise they'll end up feeling overwhelmed and there's no better recipe for apathy than feeling overwhelmed and kind of powerless because you're just you have too much information in your head and you don't really know what to do so I think it's just bite-sized concise snappy punchy no jargon and fun and like relatable and I think for so long conservation I've certainly felt has been a very male dominated quite stale quite archaic space that feels quite inaccessible you know full of naturalists or there seems to be some kind of expectation that you need to have had a certain amount of experience under your belt in order to participate in those conversations but no more I mean gosh we need every single person to feel included in this conversation because it affects every single one of us and so I think if we can just show that we are too a real person who makes mistakes and enjoys normal things and doesn't have a clue what they're looking at or what bird they're listening to but still has that fundamental passion for the future of nature and a, and a listening ear and an open mind I think that's that's all we can hope for so I think people will come together if better if you just show that you two are part of that and you know there's no kind of hierarchy of people one thing I would say is your social media is very engaging your videos are very entertaining <laughs> I always come away well very weird. <laughs> I, 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 I really enjoy them you just hit the note so well in the humour that you bring, but also how you break down the information. And I always come away thinking, oh, I didn't know that fact. There's always something. I'm like, ah. And then I'll go and tell that fact to somebody else. Or I think, oh, actually, maybe I should look into that. So I I do think that you achieve everything that you've said. You definitely do achieve with your social media. I think your social media is absolutely brilliant. Thank you. That's very kind of you. You know what else is just actually I'm I'm reflecting on as well as I say this. I opened up by saying, oh, you look really young to have written a book. 
and that is clearly like a a subtext in my brain of what I've also observed through my lifetime that yeah you're right there's it's this, funny isn't it yeah I, there's this idea that you know you must have done X, well, I didn't even notice and that I, just, said like, that. I just joked about it as if like no, no. because that would you know in my you know like I won't say David Ashmore because he's just a hero, but you know, like that you one must no, achieve a certain level. And, totally. that I, and that like just yeah, gosh. Like my own bias or my own, you know, ex- ex- No, but this is the thing, it's this culture, isn't it? And it's uh, you know, I so hope that this book will help break through that echo chamber that is so persistent and has been so persistent. And there are so many amazing people and young people rising up and amazing books coming out that to have the same mission. And so I hope that all together we can show that actually that's in the past now. This is a new era of action for nature, action for the climate, coming together, celebrating the whole community aspect of that movement. And so yeah you know I think it's um it's it's time to modernize it a bit mm. and I think bring personality into it and remind people that we are just people yeah. this might be a really really tough question and it might be a bit harsh asking you but of all the journeys that you went on to write your book do you have a favorite <laughs> I do actually so I um in chapter chapter five go to Orkney mm-hmm. in North Ronaldsay and not only was I blessed with incredible weather, which you can quiz me on if you like, it was stunning blue skies, like 19, 20 degrees. The rest of England was like sweltering in this horrendous heat wave. And I was like, see ya, I'm heading to an island. Oh my gosh, it was just, I think, I, I genuinely think about that trip to North Ronaldsay, which is the northernmost island in Orkney. I think about that most days, if not daily. It just, I was, because I was on my own, I was away for probably a good 10 days. I was on this tiny island and I was the only visitor allowed on the island because of COVID. And so that was very special. And then just turquoise seas, incredible wildlife and wildlife that wasn't afraid of me, which was very weird because normally wildlife hates me. It runs away or just doesn't Mm. ever appear. But the fact that, you know, there were seals like exploring around my legs when I was just wading in the water and like I've got footage of this seal just kind of coming up to say hello. I mean, it's just mad. And, you know, nature up there felt curious about people instead of afraid. Mm-hmm. And I like to think, you know, there's no scientific reasoning behind this, but I like to think that it's because the ratio is better between wildlife and people. So mm-hmm. they haven't been conditioned to learn that people equals death or people equals harm or danger. They just think, oh, what are they up to? Let's go check it out. Or, oh, I haven't seen them before. Let's go see who they are. And so it was just a really special time. And I think also at that time, and I can tell in my writing when I read it back, that I felt really into the flow in the first couple of chapters. I had no idea what I was doing. It was all very new to me. It was all very overwhelming. COVID was like completely overwhelming in the background. And so that was very distracting and challenging. And I felt like I kind of joke about it in the first chapter. I was just like, I pretended everything was fine and I had no idea what I was doing, but I was just giving it a go anyway. But then by chapter five in Orkney, I felt like I'd found 
my feet a little bit and that I felt really in the zone and was just so in love with the pursuit of this bird and what I was doing and meeting amazing people and just having a lot of time to to kind of take notes and kind of absorb my surroundings it was just magic it sounds like you had one of those moments in life where you have all these little bits and pieces of information that you're kind of collecting, experiencing, and, you know, in most occasions, random order. And it sounds like you had one of those moments where you're like, ah, this is why I Mm. really need to do this. I can Mm. see, I can see, Mm. I can see everything. Yeah. You can see all of it. You can see the sum sum total of your knowledge and experience why that is so important yeah as to what you're trying to achieve yeah no, that's so true and like I often feel like oh that sounds really cringy but it, it mm. is right I think you know during that time up on that island I felt like I had sort of found what I yeah. wanted to do and you know when growing up and through your teens and early 20s when I feel like there's so much societal pressure to have a plan and oh do you not know what you want to do or what do you want to do or have you found out what you want to do and it's like oh shut up like I don't know <laughs> I'll just like find something um, and I've always been envious of those people who know what they wanted to do and I felt very anxious and kind of um, worried for many years that I just was never going to find what I wanted to do but I really do think yeah up there I was just like actually yes this makes sense I feel like maybe I maybe I'm good at this you know shock horror maybe we admit that we know our skills as well as our failures so um it's a really important like it's a lovely point there in what you said as well there is so much pressure everywhere to do to do something and we we just so often forget to tell people well hang on what do you love what brings you joy you're going to be working for the rest of your life so how about starting with the feeling What yeah. makes you feel happy? What makes yeah. you feel, you know, mm. oh, I, I have a smile on my face when I'm talking about this rather mm. than. Mm. Well, it's exactly yeah. that same logic of tackling climate and biodiversity decline. Mm. You go to the emotions first. You take people there mm. to the emotional side of it. And then you go in with the facts and the mm. data and the hard stuff because emotions are very difficult to shake. Mm. So once you put people in with that, so what have you learned? I mean, you know, I know you obviously you've written this whole book and you probably have like 10 more in your head now that you want to write as well. But what have you learned? What would be your what what's our take home message? I think it's just to use your time wisely because we don't have much of it to play with. And so, you know, you hear lots of things of, you know, the time is now act now. We should have acted before or act sooner but I think what I'm trying to tell myself is instead of pressuring yourself to to say oh gosh like I must act now like oh what do I do like that's so impossible but I've got work and I've got this and I've got I don't know got to go to this place and travel here I think it's more a message of making the most of what's around you starting small i.e at home because there's stuff around you on your doorstep that needs help and that you can help and using your time wisely is my take home that's a great it's taken I know I'm also thinking mm. to myself as well about all of the noise that you're talking about in our life and it's so hard to like filter through oh, that so hard. like yeah. oh yeah it's a no- noisy old world I find it very difficult and during the like final stages of writing I 
completely went offline for like two months and that wow. really helped because I just couldn't focus and I couldn't read any other books while I was writing either apart from like trashy fiction which was great <laughs> <laughs> one thing I want to ask you because I don't feel like we can have you on the podcast and not ask you about this really quickly it might it might even be a whole new podcast episode but can we <laughs> chat a little bit about beavers <laughs> of course anytime how does the weather impact beavers I'm really interested to know it's a really good question so by their nature beavers are incredibly resilient and incredibly adaptable just by the way that they work the land and the way that they interact with their environment. But in terms of weather, their dams and their burrows that they construct are resilient, but obviously everything has its limits. And so we haven't um, seen this so much in Britain, but certainly where beavers are elsewhere in, in the Northern Hemisphere, extreme floods and storms can actually break dams and flush them downstream and flush kits so their babies out of their burrows which is really sad and in terms of drought so on the flip side beavers are actually brilliant mitigators for the effects of drought for us so their dams hold a pool of water behind them which is you know hundreds of thousands of gallons of water and it just stays there because they maintain the wetland, they're ecosystem engineers, so they work it in their favour. And so there's incredible photos by this amazing researcher called Dr. Emily Fairfax in California. And she's got aerial shots of uh, where wildfire has decimated areas of the landscape. And then you've got this like triumphant, amazing green triangle that remains in this desolate, burnt landscape. And it's a beaver wetland that hasn't been touched by the fire because it's so saturated with water. And it's not only saturated with water, but it's an incredible carbon sink. So it can hold up to 30 times as much carbon as the surrounding grassland that isn't managed by beavers. So they can be affected by extreme weather. They are brilliant builders, but they can recover. So, you know, we have storms down here where there, where there are beavers and, you know, you can see a lot of debris and stuff, but slowly but surely they'll rebuild. But, um, if anything, beavers are our allies when it comes to the climate crisis, because if you think about all that water that's held in their ponds for in, in the cases of drought, you know, that can be a huge store of water for farmers. Mm. And one of my colleagues, Chris Jones, who runs the Cornwall Beaver Project in the drought of 2020, he was one of the only farmers in the valley to have water because he siphoned it directly from the beaver pond to water his fields. So, um, yeah. They can be affected by extreme climate change and extreme flooding and extreme weather. But if anything, because they're so resilient to weather and the droughts and floods that we're, we're expecting to increase, um, we should be leaning on them like never before. Mm, they sound awesome. I don't know. Who knew? And they also help us with floods. You know, they're dams yeah. and they slow the flow of the water. So instead of a raging torrent, it takes more time to go from A to B. And so flooding is and high water is more manageable if there are beavers than that. Another system. thing I've got to learn now. Another thing I know. I've got to add to my list <laughs> more about. I've got to learn more about beavers and weathers because this is just, they are awesome. <laughs> they really are. I'm trying to imagine like the evolution of that. Like what made them do that? So you it's know, all they, for them. It, you yeah. know, they, they, they evolved to protect their young and protect their young from predators. And so they built dams and, and hid or concealed the entrances to their lodge, which is under the water. And by no nature, way. yeah. So by, so they make these little secluded um, protective pools for their young to raise them and 
at like a little nursery, I guess, from traditionally like bears and lynx and wolves that would have preyed on them. But by doing so, this is why they're a keystone species. So they have a disproportionate impact on the environment around them relative to their size and numbers. So it's very easy to anthropomorphize beavers and say, oh, aren't they being wonderful and so altruistic to nature and people? But no, they're just doing it for them. But they are unique in that sense of having such an incredible uh, kind of bonus impact on everything around them. Like that's, that's just (laughs) that the level, like that's so clever. It's so so cool. It's so cool. Just so clever to keep their, I mean, does any other animal do anything like that? I mean, that's insane. I mean, no animal um, has an impact quite like the beaver. That's mm. why everyone's, that's why it's like the hottest conservation project at the moment in terms of the potential. But then obviously we've got to manage the impact of beavers very mm. closely because they can cause unwanted impacts in a very crowded English landscape. One for another time, maybe. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I'm so glad I asked you that question now, though, because that was such an interesting... Oh, honestly, one. there's like, there's infinite, infinite, amazing things to learn about beavers. And if I'm allowed to plug the Beaver Trust podcast, the Lodgecast, yeah, of course. every episode we have um, what we call a fact off, where we give a crazy fact about beavers. And we've just finished three seasons and the facts keep coming. It's um, It's amazing how much they have have to tell us it's uh yeah very cool cool listen to that that's insane (laughs) i will Um, oh and we have an episode with that researcher dr emily fairfax and it is just like incredible she's amazing if you ever have a slot to speak to her she's so cool I've already, I've already typed she she talk about like, weather for you. amazing I want to go and see her she talk about I'm going to listen to that episode tomorrow on my walk because <laughs> oh, I think it's fantastic. um season two yeah she's so cool and she's like young and everything she's amazing incredible now we're going to move on to a get to know me round so Gemma hey. would you like to take it away okay so it's just some random questions some of them have a little bit to do with weather and some of them are just the most random questions we could just think of so what's your favorite season Ooh, autumn <gasps> yes because it's the transition Summer so spring so to spring. winter but this in spring the sea is cold in autumn the sea is nice and warm you've got me there it is the best time to swim in late autumn it is Mm. yeah and the colors are amazing yes they are oh I love nice and orange like I like warm colors yeah a lot of that going on snow yes or no yes 100% love snow okay yeah we like snow but only if we're not forecasting for it because it's one of the most (laughs) difficult stress no honestly it's one of the most complicated things to forecast for oh my goodness like the difference of like 0.1 degree is the difference between like rain and snow whether it snows on the mountain or a hill or at sea level level. it's really complicated yeah god but yeah that that in itself is a whole entire podcast just snow forecasting it's a whole other world isn't it yeah i mean i love weather and i reckon i would have absolutely loved to have been a meteorologist had i been good at physics i just think it's a i love weather but do you know what i think so the maths and the physics used to put me off as well but it's Mm -hmm. it's very much like what you experience and talk about and actually a lot of what you are doing is observing, watching, mm. 
pattern recognition and there isn't this unfortunate little like half skip and a jump that you have to do through the mats but actually I never use it it's just it's just pattern recognition and observation and experience that kind of like the what came mm. before the what's happening and that what you think is going to like you know that constant combination of, of change but it is like many sciences it is just observation and you know mm. informed observation fascinating jammy dodgers or jaffa cakes jammy dodgers hate jaffa cakes Ooh. oh you hate yeah them. i know divisive Very divisive i don't like the texture strong. i like nearly every single food that exists but jaffa cakes and chocolate orange oh chocolate no. orange what you've just mm. broken Gemma's yeah. heart right there just you've just pulled a piece out I of just, her soul it's just <laughs> i like them separately but not together. Wow. Oh, you can't beat a Terry's mm. chocolate orange, honestly. Gemma, oh, it's okay. Sickly. Oh, Gemma. <laughs> I'm <good>. really sorry. <laughs> I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I am. I've made up my mind. <laughs> I let you off because there's more than for me to eat, so it's fine. <laughs> exactly. I actually have one in the cupboard that someone gave me for Christmas, so I could send that to you, actually, because it's just not yeah, being Oh, uh, yeah, I'm it's always April. To- no, oh, genuinely. <laughs> well. I know, I know. It, it may be poisonous by now. No, they don't. No, I'm like, how have it lasted? (laughs) How's it lasted four months in your cupboard? That'd be in my belly a long time ago. (laughs) Just can't stop it. (laughs) If you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? Oh, wow. Oh, that is hard. Uh, I think I'd be kiwi because I'm really, I I love kiwis. And I like, I eat a whole kiwi, skin and and all, Um, which also is divisive. Yeah, my boyfriend got me into it, actually. He was like, oh, it's so much better for you this way. But actually, you don't taste it. It tastes really good. Do you like know, colour, ki- love a good green, love There's a good black. There's something wonderful know. about a kiwi. I don't know why I am always surprised by... Well, first of all, how thin the skin is. But there's something about the consistency of it that... And the, the, <laughs> the cohesiveness of it. Like, so if you dig it out with a spoon, oh, so it's a tiny little mm-hmm. skin, and but it's yeah. sort of somehow strong, but then pliable. Yes, it is an incredible fruit. <laughs> I'm actually That's thinking sweet. I want to go and get some kiwi. <laughs> strong yet pliable. <laughs> should work on the marketing team for kiwis, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, no one's ever said kiwi before as well. Yeah, so. I love that. Oh, that's good. If you could invite one person to dinner, they can be anybody at all from any historical time frame. They can even be a fictional character. Who would you invite? Oh, that is so hard. Wow. I think uh, it would be currently, I'd change my mind if you asked me in an hour. At the moment, <laughs> in this point in time, it'd probably be Jane Austen. Oh, how, oh yeah, I know. I know. Because I think she is one of the funniest writers and for her time to write with humor like that was so rogue and for her to be so observant and relay all the like little quirks of that time in such an amusing smart way I really admire that and I just think she'd have the most amazing stories about who in her life inspired all of her stories um and I think she'd be great company I do you know what I would love to be at that dinner with you too I would just more than welcome. Observe. I've just like observe. <laughs> Give me an observer. A weirdo oh, in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be it would be really fun. Oh, I love that. Got two more questions. This is our most Ooh. random question: fingers for toes or toes for fingers? 
<laughs> um, oh, hang on. Let me think about this. Uh, oh, I think fingers for toes, because I think you could run super fast. You could flex your foot in an incredible way. You know, oh, that's you true. Could, yeah. It could help you. You almost have like a flipper, but I think you'd be so dexterous. So I think you could have, you could discover all sorts of jobs that you weren't able to do with your feet with toes. <laughs> this is so true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking like the other day when um I've got this like brush in the shower that I use when I have conditioner and it fell into the bath and I sort of picked up on my toes and put it on the side but if there I had go. fingers for toes it could have been so much easier I wouldn't have had three attempts no I could have like put your leg up and like combed your hair you wouldn't even have to yeah, like exactly. give it to your other hands <laughs> you know <laughs> that would be so it'd be very weird wouldn't it I think shoes would be a problem but well, if you know if it was the thing then you know there's there'd probably be like cool shoes out there oh yeah like this finger those finger, finger shoes. yeah finger shoes yeah. that, that <laughs> look really weird <laughs> <laughs> oh well <laughs> yeah good question and our last question is something that you wish everybody knew about nature that nature is hilarious do expand um, <laughs> but there's just like they do just like the funniest things and I think again when I was up in Orkney and I was watching these black guillemots and they're so characterful and you can like ascribe I was like watching a group of maybe five of them and I was ascribing people in my life to each of those birds that had almost like different personalities and they're doing like the stupidest things like waddling along and tripping over or like annoying each other and batting each other on the head and then tripping over again or like slipping on their own poo and um and then <laughs> and then like even with like the um the I don't want to give too much away but the the grey longer bat and it's poo that's glittery like there are so many like weird, wacky, funny things that nature has that you had no idea. Mm-hmm. And you think like, oh, nature's boring or nature's like really complicated, which it is, of course. Or that, oh, you know, it, it will, I'll lose interest in it after 10 minutes. But if you really, if you have the privilege of being able to spend a bit of time actually watching, and it could just be sitting outside your window watching some starlings or some house sparrows. If you really tune in, nature does funny things and it's a it's a joy to behold <laughs> what a lovely take-home message so we're going to ask you one more thing mm. try and ask each of our guests to impart a weather wisdom mm. and could you tell us what carbon footprint is so carbon footprint is the total amount the total volume I guess of greenhouse gases emitted during an activity so that's carbon dioxide and methane or includes carbon dioxide and methane so that could be anything from driving to Aldi to do a shop or flying a plane to go see your cousin or even sending an email apparently has a carbon footprint if you want Mm. to get really niche about it so basically yeah it's, it's any action that has greenhouse gases tacked onto it and how much those are I think I read somewhere once that I don't know how old this data is but I think the average person globally has a carbon footprint of maybe four tons per year whether that's changed during COVID would be interesting to to discover but then I think if I also in the same thing I also read that if we are to keep below the dreaded two degree centigrade celsius rise in global temperature 
that four tons needs to halve to around about two tons mm. if everyone does that so you know that can that's a take-home message for us in terms of what can we do in our everyday lives you know do we need to boil the full kettle or even half a kettle if we just want one cup of tea do we need to drive when we could cycle could we walk do we need to go all the way to that lovely national park at the weekend if we just want time in nature could we maybe cycle to somewhere closer that sort of thing I think one of the biggest things actually I Every now and then we sort of, in my job, I will like push something about climate change. But I think one of the biggest things for me, well, probably two things, but one of them is, do you need to click? It's mm. so, do you need to click? Do you really, mm. really need that thing that you're buying? Do mm. you really need it? It's going to come in packaging. It's going to be in a van. Some of the packaging mm-hmm. might be recyclable. Some of it might not be, but then even recycling is going to, you know, incur a, a carbon, fo- you know, carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. It, do you need to click? And if we all made one better decision a day, that would be the equivalent of 64 million better decisions a day. Mm-hmm. And over a year, mm-hmm. that would be a lot of better decisions. And I think, I think it, it is massive and I'm gosh I've got myself into a right old twist on some of the podcasts I'm like but what do we do you know even I ask myself that question and I know I have the power to, to and I have a huge amount of information and even I struggle with like what what can mm-hmm. I what can I do one better decision a day is better than no decision a day and there's just Definitely. some days where you're not going to be able to do more than one and then some days where you get to do loads of them but I do think click 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 is like do you need to click? It's mm. so easy to buy. So, and the amount of spam I get as well on my emails with like clothes or, you know, yeah, this is on sale. That's on sale. That's just more clicking, isn't it? Mm, mm, definitely. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're so grateful for, um, for your time. Can you tell us where we can find you on the social media platforms? <laughs> um, sure. So I am on Instagram and Twitter mainly and the handle is very mature it's at sophie paths p-a-v-s i think it's left over from when my flatmates and i decided to get this crazy new thing called instagram when we were at uni and um we just like made up each other's handles and it stuck oh um, unfortunately <laughs> so yeah at sophie paths on instagram and twitter Excellent. can you remind us the name of your book as well yes the book is called forget me not and the subtitle is finding the forgotten species of climate change britain and that's out in june so grab that and have a read because it's a brilliant brilliant book if you would like to follow us on social media we are on instagram for the love of weather on twitter we are the number four love of weather and we would really love it if you would subscribe rate and review the podcast and as always we just really hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more Thanks for listening, everyone.